0: Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's good to have you here. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest, and I've written some books, the most recent being in the house of Tom Bombadil, and I'm working on four books at the present, uh, and the most kind of urgent book that I need to finish is a book on totalitarianism. Anyway, that's going to be relevant for the subject of the show, but before we get into that, uh, Tom and Glenn, why don't you introduce yourselves? Let's start with you, Tom. Tom Price. I teach systematic theology and Christian ethics, one of the places at Gordon Conwell
1: Theological Seminary. And I'm Glenn Sunshine, retired history professor, uh, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries. Okay, great. Well, uh,
0: it's my show today, uh, and so I've decided arbitrarily, like a dictator, like a totalitarian, (laughs) that we're going to talk about knowledge (laughs) <laughs> and uh we're going to talk about why knowledge is more than power so we know the statement uh, attributed to francis bacon uh knowledge is power which by the way uh i had this uh, fun uh thing i read here where a guy actually thought that uh, the full statement was uh knowledge is power france is bacon <laughs> 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 and for like years, he thought that was what you, everybody would, you know, what everybody uh, was getting at when they were talking about Francis Bacon. Anyway, it's a, it's a person <laughs> a got named Francis and his last name was Bacon. But uh, on this matter of knowledge is power, that's more or less accepted as a truism today. Uh, almost as though that's just so obvious. Why did you even need to, to, to state that? We all know that knowledge is power. But is that really the case? Uh, or is knowledge more than power? Or is knowledge and power a set of things that uh, kind of are connected in a wide range of ways? And perhaps we're missing some of those ways. Anyway, that's what I'd
1: like to talk about today. Do you guys have any thoughts on the subject? Yeah, before you get there, um, actually, in some ways, uh, Foucault and to some extent Derrida inverted that. Mm. Um, they said those with power are determine what qualifies as knowledge. Yeah. 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 And, and I do actually think it's relevant to, to the things
0: I want to reflect on, because I th- I think in our time, people use power as the test of knowledge. So whether or not it gets you what you want, you know, in a pragmatics way is, a de- is what determines whether or not it's genuine knowledge. Yeah. And I'd
1: so- like to dig into that a little bit. Yeah, Foucault, Foucault does it a little bit differently. He says that what the, the people who have cultural power are the ones who dictate what constitutes knowledge. So there are some kinds of knowledge that the people with cultural power accept. There are some kinds of knowledge that they reject. And this is why all knowledge ends up being a cultural construct, according to Foucault. But yeah, again, there like is a it. connection between power and knowledge. It's yeah. just not quite the one that Bacon outlines. And I think that's yeah. really a lot of what's behind CT right now. And I think, oh, yeah. I
2: think Chris, you, you hinted the point that you know it gets us what we want. And it, it's when knowledge and power are extensions of will, which becomes very central. And then one of the things Foucault was aware of, and this is something that carries on into the critical theories, is that they see those who have the capacity to exert their will on everyone else, and and do it through creating what is, you know, the the construct of knowledge, you know, creating tr- constructing truth, um, as basically the the only one that has real freedom, the the ability to enact their will on things are those that have the most power right so there is this this play between the freedom of of some to exert their will usually the powerful and then their freedom to construct for everyone else what truth and knowledge is because um, that allows their will to exercise more and more control over things, but there is, like Glenn said, there's a play between the knowledge of power of the Enlightenment and its inversion um, in the in the kind of postmodern thinkers like Foucault and um, Derrida.
0: Yeah, I'd like to think a little bit uh, about this, uh, and what I have to uh, present uh, are just some, you know, sort of mental. Um, uh, I guess, constructions <laughs> that, that I'm, I'm developing that are uh, still in process. They're, this is all nascent. This is all uh, stuff that could be refined, developed, uh, and so forth. So uh, more or less what I'm saying is that the arguments that I'm presenting here are not final. Uh, they're uh, in important ways qualified. But – I do think they relate some of my thinking relates to these things that we've just been talking about. This is familiar territory for for all of us. But as I've thought about what Bacon was up to, Baconian science and what I think many people who share his convictions and his project to have in mind does actually relate to to this stuff. So let's think about it this way. Um What Bacon was getting at was a way of apprehending, understanding the physical processes of the world so that we could uh, leverage them in ways that help us to exercise control or dominion over the physical world. So say uh, the power to create air conditioning, you know, on a hot, humid day in Kansas City, Uh, when the temperature is 98 degrees and the dew point is at the same uh, (laughs) number, (laughs) it's a very uncomfortable place to be. And when you walk into an air conditioned space, you say, thank you, Francis Bacon. Because because if it wasn't for this insight, we would bake uh, even more on the inside than on the outside. So uh, there is a real sense in which this insight is helpful and it's, it's produced a number of marvelous things. Furthermore, getting back to our notions of social power, um, there were, uh, if we take Foucault, Derrida and their sort of way of thinking about things, we could say that in every society, not just Western society, there has been uh, a combination of knowledge and power. And, uh, when you have the right, when you know the right things, you can exercise power in that social environment. So let's just say native Americans. So native Americans, uh, even though they're minority groups, uh, they're minority groups in, in the current situation that they find themselves in, once upon a time, uh, they were running the show here in North America. <laughs> and then, you know, and then within their various tribal groups, there were people who had power, uh, more power than other people, and oversaw, governed those groups. You could talk about chiefs, shaman, whatever. And uh, so there was a, there was a social environment in which power was unevenly distributed and there were powerful people or less powerful people. Now, when Europeans came on the scene, uh, they have, you know, European powers had their own ways of organizing their societies, but they had a kind of power that these other societies did not. It just didn't, it didn't kind of just get reduced to the size of the population or any of that. It came down to a particular kind of knowledge that allowed Europeans to exercise power in ways that the Native Americans could not. Example, gunpowder, rifles, that kind of stuff, communications. All of that was real, uh, really, uh, instrument, really instrumental to the conquest of North America. And there's nobody who can deny that. So the, that's, not a, that's not merely a social construct. <laughs> there was real power that the European powers possessed that the Native Americans did not. That's why they wanted the guns. That's why they wanted the horses. That's why they wanted these different things in order to be able to resist. They knew that their own technologies uh, did not have uh, the kind of uh, ability to project force like the European powers did. So that's what Bacon was getting at. And I want to explore that a little bit, and 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 kind of entertain the idea that that he's half right, but not even half. That there, there's a there's a huge dimension of knowledge that this particular way of thinking uh, fails to uh, appreciate and apprehend. Anyway, I know I've said some things that give you plenty of uh, <laughs> stuff to react to, so go ahead, react away.
1: <laughs> Just as a reminder, I think we've talked about this before, uh, Tolkien and Lewis both equated the Baconian project of acquiring knowledge to acquire power over nature with magic. Right. They saw both, both magic and science slash technology as rooted in the same impulse of us exerting our will over the world or over other people. Yeah. And this would be true for Native Americans. So let me just stay with them
0: for the sake of consistency. There, there were medicine men. There were men who claimed to be able to to work magic and use their their technology, right? Their technology that helped them to uh, exer- or exert spiritual power, uh, and that they they were able to use that to. Uh, oversee and govern their own communities but it was no match when it came time to face the Europeans so we have to that's true so there was there was magic and there was science and they both were trying to control the physical environment but one proved to be more consistent than the other
2: (laughs) and and then you also had that coupled with a lot of that was the the first pangs in Europe of of enlightenment thinking that severed some of the moral constraints um, that Christianity had, had you know, placed on things and, and should have given a, a fuller expression to, um, and then tied certain distorted views of Christian domination with conquest, uh, and so that you did see power, the, the development of a kind of instrumental control over natural conditions um, as natural science really took off and allowed, you know, uh, technology to develop, weaponry, um, naval forces, you know, all the different crafts, as as something very Christian, which is that there is an intelligible order to things, and things have kind of natures that that unfold, and and the kind of ability we have as humans to understand this process and and shape it, right um but as that gets shifted uh, you know in a different direction than when Tolkien was up to right as being a co-creator this became as if we were almost creators um, um of the same nature that God is as if we have through as if we're almost like micro versions of omnipotence right um that we can exert our will through this knowledge and direct things in accord with the way we want them to be and I think um I think you have there a a, a real strong cocktail between Christianity and its distortion by a a new kind of magic, which I think Bacon is an exemplification of.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, zeroing in on this, um, what we have in Christianity is a set of spiritual constraints that were sloughed off but that sloughing off was not unconnected to the rise of modern science. Mm -hmm. So when we think about the rise of modern science, it's a reaction to an Aristotelian uh, science that considers things in a fuller way than modern science does. So, for example, uh, forms and ends. So forms and ends uh, were, you know, inseparable from the things that, you know, the stuff that things were made of and the way they came to be. So efficient and material causation. So final cause, formal cause, material cause, efficient cause, that's the Aristotelian uh, approach uh, to studying natural things. Uh, with Baconian science, two of those are split, sloughed off, uh, formal cause and final cause. And that's where the Christian faith constrained uh, is with those causes and and an important uh, real quick point and and
2: what that does is basically makes the material cause um foundational in other words what what is causal language doing for aristotle and why did the church find it useful because in reducing things to their causes what you're showing is the things are not intelligible apart from something more intelligible in which they share in and as, as creatures um, of a creator, they, they, to get the intelligibility of what they are, why they are, and what they're for, you can't bracket them off from the, the most intelligible reality, which is God, as it's the, the, the originating cause and the purpose for which they're created. When you take them out of the picture, the intelligibility now of each thing is reduced to its physical chain of causes and there is there isn't anything really higher. And so its function um, is really all it's for, and if you can play with that function to serve a higher function, which is our purposes, then it's basically clay for our molding
1: without any constraints. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's what I'm getting yeah, at. Go
1: ahead. Yeah, now, now, to take this back to Genesis, I think we've got a good argument in Genesis for doing science, for learning about the world, as a means of exercising proper dominion over it. Mm -hmm. But the word that is really critical there is proper. Um, Scripture is clear that the earth is the Lord's, it isn't ours. Mm -hmm. We have dominion here in in the sense of stewardship. But Mm -hmm. we always have to remember that everything that we're working with here was made by God and belongs to God. And thus... As we work with the world, we should always be pursuing the proper ends, which is to develop the world to the glory of God and in conjunction with, with his lordship, not despoiling it, not perverting it, not taking it and using it for our purposes apart from him. Now, that all that's very true, and I'm 100% on board with it. I think
0: one of the things that distinguished, say, Aristotelian thinking from what you just described, Glenn, is that Aristotelian thinking believed that you could discern within the things themselves, their forms and ends. What you described is uh, an insight into the purpose of the whole because of the unique relationship that we have as creatures to the divine, to God. And I think it's true.'m I'm not I'm not arguing with that. but um, I, I want to proceed a little bit here to explore kind of the implications of this because, it doesn't stop uh, where we would like it to stop with air conditioning. <laughs> you know, if, 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 if that's all it sort of uh, resulted in, we'd all just say, hey, go for it, baby. <laughs> but it doesn't. So what, what we see, too, is uh, when we think about this sort of bifurcation um, with regard to the material and the purposeful, uh, we can see the bifurcation we see between the sciences and the humanities, for example. Uh, remember C.P. Snow uh, and his uh, two, was it two was it two kingdoms or two? no? It wasn't two kingdoms. Anyway, he he, he made an argument that uh, maintained that uh, the, the the humanities and the sciences were just simply unable to communicate with each other, hmm. and that uh, uh, consequently uh, both were impoverished. But I think. What we what we've actually seen uh, is a lot of surprising things develop, um, but but it all kind of uh, develops in a in a sort of prog- in a progressive way. Uh, in say the 18th and 19th century, we see the introduction of the fact value distinction. So facts uh, are these you know, I think data points that we're able to. Um, record, quantify, and then values are things that we sort of bring to the world that we possess, but they're subjective. Uh, So no longer do we look to the object and say, okay, what's the purpose of this thing? Uh, What's its, what's its form? Instead we say, okay, this is just a sort of mechanistic uh, universe that we find ourselves in. We can understand it uh, using these data points, examining uh, phenomena, uh, getting our facts straight but when it comes to the values well that's uh you know subjective internal you have your values i have my values there's no value to be found outside in the world
2: and what's going on there is a certain understanding of the human as as again uh fundamentally centered in in their their volition and that volition it, it is almost like a mimicry of of what it means to be god in that it can generate out of its own resources meaning and purpose. These aren't grounded externally, they're grounded in in the choosing or the or the dispositions of, of the agent. And so what marks you as distinct as a human and gives you your dignity is your ability to basically be stamp y- your, yourself as if you're God on the world. So values are what you bring to the world. Um, purposes are what you project onto things and and meaning is what you construct right Right. it's out of your inner resources um, and these you know these sometimes can be an exhibition of what external reality determines you to think but they also can be what you spontaneously generate depending on the view of humanity you adopt
0: yeah we lose objective value there's no objective value right Yeah, so participation in anything fuller. But what does that mean for knowledge? Well, that means that the only real knowledge is the knowledge that's quantifiable, that is derived from the observation of the facts of uh, material phenomena, etc. And uh, anything that can't be uh, put into those terms is second rate, it's your opinion. Um, you believe in God. I believe in uh, science. That kind of thing. You know. You, you see where I'm going with this. Uh, so all so, all, of, all knowledge that that can't be shoehorned into this materialist approach is ipso facto not power and not
1: uh, verifiable. Go ahead, Glenn. Yeah. The, the best example of this, I think, is the word science itself. Originally, the the Latin word from which we get science referred to any knowledge from a field that had a methodology attached to it. Yeah. Thus, theology was a science. You know, Mm -hmm. theology was the queen of the sciences and so on. All of these different fields were sciences. Around the 19th century, maybe late 18th into the 19th century, I haven't tracked the date exactly here, the word science or scantia gets limited to knowledge of the natural world empirically verifiable or, if you're a positivist, things that follow from logical necessity.
2: Yeah.
1: So science gets restricted to the way we use it today for the natural sciences. But that means that knowledge is being restricted to just the things coming out of the natural sciences. And everything else then falls into this area of value. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why, in order to defend the and justify their existence, a number of fields created this area called the social sciences. Yeah. Because they wanted to say, no, no, we really, this is real knowledge. This is really something that 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 qualifies as knowledge. It isn't just opinion or anything. Well, that's where
2: you got, especially in German, and the Wissenschaft, the, the whole traditions of, of social sciences is almost mimicking the natural sciences in terms of methodology. And even I think his, I there's people like von Harnack, they wanted to make uh, uh, his history almost um, it read in that on the model of natural science. Um, now that, the day,
0: the thing the thing that uh is most disturbing about this, this, this trend is that what we are moving toward is knowledge as uh quantification as yeah. opposed to uh something more capacious that could include quality. So, this is another way to distinguish these two things. Yeah. So, we have a quantification, so quantitative social science is the science of the numbers, is the sci- the science of data points, is the science of, cho- you know, sort of people and the choices that they make. Um, and what we're trying to do is acquire a, a, a knowledge of human societies or human psychology that uh, in some sense conforms to this science uh, that we apply to the natural world. And now, what, what, what does this all kind of lead to? Well, it leads to one thing I've been hitting at for a while, and that is uh, we have devalued, uh, discounted, no longer count. We don't, yeah. we don't count things that can't be counted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, get, you get my drift here. So I'm playing with words a little bit, but quality. So let me, let me introduce something uh, completely different, uh, I, but I think relevant. When I say I know my wife, how is that power? Now, we might be able to shoehorn that knowledge into an understanding, uh, you know, knowledge is into the understanding, knowledge is power, the definition, but
1: uh, does it really fit? Of course it does, Chris, because you're a patriarchal oppressor. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. There you go.
0: End of show. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, but you know, flip
2: it to how rich the biblical language is for a husband and wife to know each other, and think of how close that is to knowledge of God and all things else. There, there's a
0: there's a int- communal intimacy that is the the most. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that well, that's the thing. So, like this sentence. If we just look at the sentence, uh, when I say, I know my wife, I, is, that's the subject. The object is wife. Know is the verb. I know my wife. Okay, so we've, we've diagrammed the sentence. But uh, is she really an object? In the real world, is my wife an object? Well, no, she's a fellow subject. So she knows me as I know her. Furthermore, uh, uh, the knowledge that we have of each other changes the other, so when I speak with my wife, I've changed my wife. What have I done? I've introduced something to who to her that was not in her mind before, and when she returns, uh, you know, you know, a, a you know says something to me in return. Uh, there's something that I know that I didn't know before. So there's a kind of transformation that occurs, yeah. but this can't be reduced to the yeah. science. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but does that somehow make it less valuable? No, it's actually far more valuable.
2: Well, in in that, I think you're really getting a clear a clear way of distinguishing the difference between, let's say, a classic Christian vision and what came after, is because as we talked about enough, the the fact of anything that isn't God is here because of God. It's a it's a gift, and therefore it has something about it that is part of the give and take. In other words, it has something to give, not. But it's also gets something from you, right? It, you and and other things are, are in a given to a communicative relationship. Things communicate them their being to you, and you also communicate your being to that. And it's in that that sharing of communion that you know the other thing truly, and it truly knows you. And so when you bracket. Th- that off to where I am the only one who really has being and I am giving any life or being to this thing. We aren't really knowing those things. What we are is only knowing enough about them to basically reaffirm myself as the whole thing and that only here to gratify or serve that's, that's exactly
0: I, it, and, and that's yeah. what I'm getting at. There's something about Baconian science that's dehumanizing. Yeah. So let me just play this out a little bit, because I've been thinking a lot about this uh, over the past week and a half as I've been sort of struggling to write a chapter on this.
2: No, it's, it's, yeah, it's not easy to, to get all the ramifications down. It's a, there's a well, lot going on.
0: Well, I can abstract from my knowledge of my wife something that could be, well, used as currency a kind of data that would okay. be useful to other people. It would actually help them exercise power. Let me give you an example. I know my wife loves chocolate. Now, my wife would say, amen. She would have, she would be, be right. Yep, you, that's exactly yeah. right. Now, with that knowledge, you can ingratiate yourself to my wife and in some sense exercise some influence, even though you don't have a relationship in the way that I do. Furthermore, I could take that information. And if somebody was collecting a, or making a list of chocolate lovers, uh, depending on the size of the list and whether or not it contained their contact information, it could be very valuable to certain parties. So let's say I had a list of chocolate lovers that was uh, 3 million in number. And, uh, that, uh, you know, information about my wife has some value, uh, and would mean power to a chocolate Manufacturer, <laughs> right? Because yeah. then they would have access to my wife. Yeah. Uh, but is that knowing my wife the way I know my wife? Of course not. But that's yeah. the kind of knowledge that Bacon wants.
1: Right, and you know what? What I'm struck by is that within this framework of Baconian science, knowledge becomes utilitarian, just like ethics do. Yeah. Yep. And the connection between epistemology and ethics is one of these things I find really interesting. But oh, yeah. but here's a, here's a clear example where utilitarian epistemology, ultimately, I would argue, has to lead you to utilitarian ethics. Right.
0: And utilitarian ethics are the ethics of instrumentalizing yeah. uh, knowledge and using it to get what you want. Now, let me think about this a couple more ways. So in Scripture, we're told that we uh, see through a, a glass darkly. In other words, there is a sense in which... Uh, Our knowledge is incomplete. Well, our knowledge of whom is incomplete? Our knowledge of God and how things will work out and all these other things. But we're given a promise. Someday we will know as we are known. And what will happen on that day? We will be transformed. Mm -hmm. So there is a power that will be exercised on us through our knowledge of God. Our, we, we will go from knowing in part to knowing fully. Uh, we will, And because of that, we will be transformed. Mm-hmm. And until that day, we need power to know God. So when you think about, you know, the Apostle Paul and his uh, address, you know, his what he, what he has to say, the, the Ephesians. You know, there, I think it's in chapter three, where he says that he prays that they would have the power to uh, apprehend God. Uh, what is theirs in Christ? So, in other words, they need power to know. So, it isn't as so as though knowledge is the key to power. They're in a position where they can't even know what they what they need to know and uh, really would want to know without God's help, which in, again inverts everything. But what that does is it gets it takes this whole matter of this uh, communal aspect of knowledge. To the highest level, <laughs> so in yeah. in that in that area, we don't exercise power over God through our knowledge. God's power is realized in our lives, and we're transformed. Whole different thing than making yeah. science. And again,
2: the 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 language early theologians used to talk about it following right out of the scripture is this, you know, is participate participation in God's own self-knowledge. I mean, that's the creaturely share in it. So it's, it's always something we're growing into. We can never, we can never circumscribe God or knowledge, but, but what we are is having God's own, God's own, God's disclosing, right? And that's where your power comes, the power of the spirit, right? Is to bring us up into God's self-disclosure, so that we can truly know in a creaturely way that truth of God in all things related to God. Um, that's why I think the the, the the bracketing of theology from the sciences, um, I think also, or, or replacing it with with a kind of hid, hidden theology, as, as Mike Hanby likes to talk about, um, is, I think, uh, one of the most dangerous things that is leading to the kind of, you know, the flips we saw with Foucault and then then really their outplay. Um, see what you have going on is when when you do have knowledge as power take on this kind of positivistic scientism that developed, whether it is whether it is a deterministic type of um, you know naturalism or materialism whether it's a dialectical type whether it's a historicism right it's just you know the unfolding of all things in the flux of history. Um, or, or a, kind of, uh, a kind of libertarianism in which, you know, we, through our choice, are kind of transcending the creaturely to bring it under our submission and will. Um, I think all of those things are, are serving a, a, a kind of bad theology, and therefore a bad set of aims and purposes. And those things have marginalized large swaths of reality, that are coming back with a vengeance. And so a lot of what we see as, you know, the horrendous outflow of postmodernity and and um, all this kind of, you know, transgender issue and all of this, it's kind of flooding back in with the criticism that this knowledge of power move marginalized so many things that everything now wants a claim back into
0: to what can be considered knowledge. So l- let me just take that in a a direction that maybe, uh, will surprise folks. So, um, and I'll show in a minute how this connects, but let me take a step back and say something first. When we think about the classic understanding of political liberty, it, it entailed participation in the governing of the community through voting but also through deliberation and debate right uh so a, a truly free person was a person who was able to participate in self-governance and in some cases restrict himself through the political process <laughs> you know we're not going to allow businesses to open on sunday that's the town meeting we've debated the subject we've come to the mm-hmm. you know a a decision, a judgment's been rendered, the law has been passed, da-da. So, <laughs> but you're still politically free in that understanding because you can participate in an ongoing way in deciding whether or not that law should be overturned. But that's the point. You are, you've been enfranchised. You're part of the franchise because you can participate. Now, something happened in the late part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century where all of that was thrown out the window. It was the rise of the progressive movement. And the progressive movement is uh, progressivism as it applies to government, enlightened sort of uh, macro management of nations. We see it develop in France with bureaucracy, bureau, French word. (laughs) And uh, so what you end up with is this vast uh, machine, which more or less uh, regulates the state. And so you have this apparatus, this administrative state that exists within this larger constitutional republic, and over time, uh, what we've seen is more and more sort of daily, uh, sort of, uh, you know, sort of effective power uh, transfer from legislative bodies to the administrative state. Um, Christopher Caldwell, one of the guys who's part of the uh, Claremont Institute, uh, wrote a book a little while back called uh, I think it's t- it's titled The Second Constitution. Basically, it's a kind of a living constitution, the living constitution of the administrative state, <laughs> which really <laughs> yeah. is the, the. Now, what what? How does this all apply to, to uh, totalitarianism? Well, it applies in this way: you've got to have the apparatus and the f- mindset that it reflects, uh, which is really has its origin in Baconian science in order to get totalitarianism. You need the administrative state and you need, uh, an administrative state that cares more about controlling things than seeing the will of the people or seeing the deliberative process unfold. Um, what that means is that they're very interested in the social sciences. <laughs> they're <laughs> interested in the ways in which the social sciences give them insight into controlling populations and how to do that. Yeah. Um, so we become subjects of the administrative state, uh, managed, controlled, directed in a variety of ways. Now, where Foucault comes in is the administrative state is this marvelously uh, absorbing entity it's like the Borg; it'll take anything you want. So, okay, you're into uh, transgenderism. We can we can do that for you. We can we can make that a you know a function of the administrative state. We can we can uh, you know uh, police and uh, sort of manipulate uh, you know sort of the libraries that uh, re- you know, rely on us for their funding, the public schools for the same. We have these vast bureaucracies that spend nothing, you know, they do nothing except think up new rules all day long to promulgate and pass around. That's how they justify their existence. (laughs) But all of this stuff is is made possible by this statement: "Knowledge is power." Yeah, that's my thesis, anyway.
1: Yeah, just an observation. The probably clearest example of this is that um, the vast majority of the functional laws that we live under are not passed by any legislature. Um, They're they're done by bureaucratic fiat, because the legislature offloads the responsibility. They give you a general framework for the law, and then they offload the responsibility on what that means to the bureaucracy. And they write up all the rules in terms of how that's supposed to work out. And I would argue in many cases, it takes it in very different directions than was intended by Congress in the first place.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. But I think you can see what I'm getting at is that when we, what's happened is we've gone from being citizens to subjects, mm-hmm. but not subjects in the old sense. You know, in the old sense, at least a, a good king would recognize his responsibility to care for his subjects in ways that were in accordance with divine law and so forth that's not the case here Uh, what we have is we're subjects to uh, a bunch of pseudoscientists who are interested in data that allow them to manipulate and control uh, a vast population
2: yeah and and i think you know i I often reflect on it from the angle of you know the church and and you know especially in, in our context and culture and and a lot of conditions that have to go be in place for it to weaken in so many dimensions, especially morally and its public witness. Um, we've, we've, you know, we've been over a lot of these, but you, you think of how easy it is to capitulate for so many Christians. Um, it it has taken a long time to break the will of the church, if you will, over and over again. Um, to where it just really became, you know, it's navel gazing or it's just focusing up on, you know, what it is for it to be okay in it, its small little context, and and really at this in- intimidation that if it's going to be proclaiming the truth of things, of God and and everything else, um, that really somehow it, it's entered a sphere of being intolerant or entered it, it's bought. It's bought the values of liberalism to the point at which the radical dimensions that have now entered and replaced liberalism have been able to bank on the church buying into liberalism to where it can it can wreak havoc because the church is basically functioning um, out of its weakening under you know, a liberal social order. And what I mean by that is, for example, it's relativism and it's it's
1: tolerating everything.
0: I want to make things worse in a minute, but yeah. I can see that Glenn has something to say before I <laughs> lay on you. It's something even more depressing.
1: Um, well, I, 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 I'll match you depressing almost any day of the week, but, <laughs> but what I, I was going to do a historical um, observation here. You get the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the early 20th century in the Presbyterian Church and parallel movements elsewhere. What ends up happening is the modernists win. And so what we see emerging in mainstream Christianity, mainstream Protestantism in America is liberal Protestantism. And in the meantime, the conservatives picked up their marbles and went home and, uh, Basically, you know, you've got the, your fundamentalist groups that just talk to themselves and they won't participate in society or anything else. That is the context in which progressivism arises. Progressivism comes when the church withdraws being, from being salt and light in society.
2: Yeah. And, and the fundamentalism internalized a metaphysics of modernity in right. its expressing Classical Christian views, so it it already had its own. In, it, it, we see it today with its just reaction against anything that isn't fundamentalism, and so re, the reactionism um, and the inability to to you know um, answer with the substantive riches of Christianity as salt and light um, has really shown itself in just how much it internalized the modern world, even in its attempt to be separate
0: from it. So let, let me just return uh, for a moment uh, to this notion of knowledge in the sense that is f- full, uh, having a really a central place for this kind of communal knowing that we've just been talking about. God knowing us, us knowing God, a man knowing his wife, his wife knowing him, uh, citizens knowing each other and, and engaging in conversation uh, and debate over what's in the best interest of all. So all of that's been shuttled, sh- shoved aside, pushed aside, and it's been replaced by progressivism. But progressivism in what sense? Well, progressivism in the sense that uh, we're now trying to govern uh, scientifically uh, and uh, using uh, data that is uh, accumulated from different sources. Now, we've had this going on for you know, a very long time, but it's kind of amped up. It's kind of gone to another level with the rise of social media and uh, computing. So there are are data now that uh, the Nazis and the Soviets would have dreamed and drooled over. (laughs) If you think of you know what what would they have been able to accomplish if they just had this? (laughs) That that, now I know we could talk about whether or not that kind of technology could have even emerged in those systems, but uh, nevertheless, we can
1: answer the question by looking at China
0: today. That's right. That's right. Total control, total control. So uh, how does it work though? Well, the thing about Baconian science, because of its tendency to objectify everything, it can't be that the knower can't be known, mustn't be known. Uh, That would spoil the objective status of the knower. So uh, the whole process of knowing is behind a facade or say a, a two way mirror think about it this way. So when you think about a two-way mirror from one side, you can see yourself. Hey, there I am. You can pick your teeth. You can do something embarrassing, you know, in front of the mirror. All the while, there's somebody on the other side of the mirror because from that side, it's a window. And that's what we have with this approach to data gathering that we see in our society today. And that's what's happening right now as we're engaged in creating yeah. this show because <laughs> there are no. people who are listening. Now, they're not listening in, but they're recording yeah. everything. There is, a, there is a listening station, yeah. in utah that's run by the national uh, security administration nsa that is recording this show it's on yeah. their servers yeah yeah the they, I, like
2: i've seen one of the, the servers in someone's basement and i had no idea what it was when i when i saw it <laughs> and i couldn't find it now um but but it, it, it is yeah it's kind of dis- a little disturbing this has been going on for a long time um One of the things that I think uh, another aspect of this is, again, we're talking a lot about the way in which um, this notion of kind of enlightenment way of getting control of things, objectifying, um, and, and this is just made worse with flooding society with its kind of chaotic alternative where where there is no truth or truth is only you know what your group identity is is as it shares in a kind of communal knowing and interpretation of the world and anything that dismisses that or doesn't embrace that becomes a threat to it to that truth your truth my truth um but one of the things that you really don't see, and this is, this is kind of tied to your point, and this is one of the few things I hear a lot of even Christians address is, you know, I think this was my point a little earlier with the church, is it never really or rarely turned the wheels back on those that are, are um, driving the train. Like you said, they're yeah. oftentimes far removed. But mo- most philosophies and philosophers that are having the kind of impact they're having, if you apply their own stuff to themselves, they're guilty of everything. It's just like this: anybody who's trying to claim, you know, that someone else is an oppressor, you by asserting their knowledge and enforcing it on others, they're doing the same thing, and the, the claim, you know, exemption that you can skip out of it. So, I mean, the the, the amounts of, you know, rational you know, irrational jumps through loops and avoidances to not
0: have their own theories thrown back on them is, is unbelievable. Well, I, I, I think we're on the cusp of perhaps a, a breakthrough. Yeah. And what I mean by that is um, I think that some people are beginning to finally put it all together and realize that, um, that they've painted themselves into a corner in modernity. And the thing that they need... Uh, isn't in reach with regard yeah. to what what we have available, and they're beginning to look up and reaching yeah. for the sky hook to deliver them. And I'm thinking of one person in particular, and that's Paul Kingsnorth. So Paul mm. Kingsnorth is a, is a fascinating guy. And by the way, I'm in I'm in it I'm in the process right now of trying to connect with him. Hey. Uh, I've got somebody that we that knows him that's helping me to connect with him, and I'd, I'd love to get him on the show. But this is a guy who was considered a a pretty radical um, green in the UK, uh, almost to the point of being kind of so far uh, out there that, you know, people uh, wondered if he was in touch with reality. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, but he's completely turned on the green movement. And it's because he believes it's been co-opted by the machine. And he's just as appalled as anyone by all the crazy stuff we see in the name of, you know, the the green agenda you know people flying from all over the world to places to talk about how they can maybe ruin your farm <laughs> yeah. yeah that kind of stuff but uh he yeah. he has com- recently become to uh, become a christian and has become huh. a very vocal one uh hmm. he now owns a farm a small uh, farm uh in uh ireland and uh he's uh kind of doing some intellectual work on this on this stuff that's really fascinating he's kind of like uh the next generation of wendell barry and i think but i think he's got some insight into some of the stuff that barry misses and yeah. anyway uh we'll have uh, I'll, I'll get you some stuff that he's written here in the future but he's on this and and there are more and more people like this guy who are there like there are and i, I elite, know in academic do- people yeah. And I know in academics for years, it, I mean, you,
2: you saw a lot of these. Sh- I mean, we, we could talk about, you know, Thomas Kuhn's notion of, you know, uh, scientific revolutions and the way in which fact and value are far more integrated. Right. The way in which interpretation, um, the personal and the factual are, are, are a fuller, holistic whole, and some could see that as leading to uh, um, to relativism. It, it wasn't intended that way. It was just the, to reintegrate humanities and and the the shape, the interpretive shaping, with the, the interaction with the factual world. But then you remember Michael Pogliani, um, personal knowledge, and he had a really strong impact. In, again, in the way in which the tacit is always involved in, and I think again they're reaching towards something that was was left and uh, a holistic um, ontology in which there is a much more intimate relationship between all creaturely things and knowing in which the fact value distinction is just done away with and that doesn't mean that there aren't aren't ways of of uh, engaging reality that are more true than others it's the exact opposite there are because there are really gifts that are giving themselves and you're exchanging yourself with that are communicating and that communication is built into the reality of things and it therefore gives a fuller richer knowledge that can include all of those dimensions of our humanness and those things external to us without closing the door or turning them into manipulated
0: ways of of relating yeah and i think i think that we're, like I like I, uh, hope I was able to convey. I think we're at a, a really interesting time. You know the old Chinese curse: "May you live in interesting times." But I think <laughs> uh, I think there's a, there's some reason for hope um, insofar as the best minds. That's the thing, the best minds. The best minds are not caught up in CRT. The best minds are not uh, wrapped up in transgender, justific- you know, justifying transgender nuttiness. And uh, the best minds across the board are like, what in the world is going on? We're at a place that's not good. Uh, what, what's missing? And a lot, of, a lot of people, really sharp people, are asking good questions right now. That that's yeah. it. Doesn't get it's not stuff you see on CNN or Fox News or whatever you know. But if you're if you're yeah. tap, kind of tapped in to yeah. uh, some things that are really important, um, there is encouraging stuff going. On. So I mean, Paul Kingsnorth, he was, his Substack has a thirty thousand uh, yeah. you know member list uh, that subscribe yeah. to his Substack. So this guy now. You have to work to find the guy. <laughs> it's it's yeah. not like he's promoting himself all over America. He's not like Joe Rogan or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but people are, who are like really wondering what in the world is going on are discovering guys
1: like Paul Kingsworth. Yeah. You know the something you said earlier. Um, moving off of a philosophical level for the moment, something you said earlier I think is really important, and that's this idea of uh, the bureaucracy. Uh, the bureaucratic system, the administrative state, whatever you want to call it, is, um, you know, trying to apply science, you know, Baconian science to governance. Now, the thing that's significant about that on one level is that um, political systems always parallel economic systems. So in You know, you have feudalism as a political system. You have manorialism as the economic system that goes with it because both of them are based on a shared set of assumptions about natural human relations. Hmm. Um, Capitalism or free market economics, as I prefer to call it, goes really well with representative government because they're based on the same fundamental ideas that, um, you know, I will I will buy what a politician is selling me, I will vote for a store to stay in business with my dollars. I mean, they're basically the same kind of thing. Once you move away from a truly representative system to a system that's controlled by experts, by bureaucrats, by technocracy, uh, any of those things, you automatically undermine free market economics. Because what ends up happening is if the expert is the one who determines what should happen in terms of laws and politics and things like that, the expert is also the one who controls the economy. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think so you inevitably move towards something like socialism. Yeah, and what we, what we
0: find, too, is that in the process they lose sight of uh, human beings uh, because they're reduced to objects. Uh, there's a loss of confidence or a loss of faith in the real presence. And I used that in the last show that we were, uh, you know, in our last conversation. Uh, when I think of the significance of real presence for politics, it, uh, I think it's an, it's implicit in what you were describing, Glenn, free market economics and Republican government. It's implicit. There is a there is a, 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 a someone out there, uh, and uh, that someone is uh, like me. And I am uh, I'm real and he's real (laughs) or she's real, you know. And because that's the case, uh, the way that we interact with each other has to be uh, uh, done in a way that acknowledges the agency of the other, the, the rights of the other. We're not just simply subject to the laws of whatever you want to say the law is, you know, economics or what have you. There's a there's a real presence
1: out there. A couple of uh, uh, observations from Canada. Uh, right now, there I mean, I just saw this week, there's an article arguing that physician-assisted suicide can save the state a lot of money.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've yes. seen that. Yeah, yeah, and, um, if you really want to save a lot of money, kill them all. <laughs> right. You get
1: sick, and, you die. And <laughs> the, the, other, the other one was that there was a Canadian veteran and a Paralympian who was trying to get a ramp put in at their house so that she could, you know, at, at her house or at somewhere uh, so that she could have easier access. The state wouldn't fund that, but they offered to euthanize her. Really? Yes. They were, wow.
2: Yeah. This yeah, is exactly heard, the kind I've of thing you're talking heard.
1: about where, yeah. where the bureaucracy has its own logic that excludes the person, that excludes yeah. the human. Yeah. 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 At least and, at this point, they didn't just
0: move in and take her uh, and and euthanize her. Uh, at least they still said, hey, you got a choice. You can die or, you know, yeah. die. <laughs> but there's no ramp for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I
2: mean, the I mean, I think, you know, critics of of where where, for example, the U.S. has went with with its kind of distorted view of freedom in relationship, almost like the, you know, The notion that the choice through the free the you know unpremised choice in other words you you have nothing other than what you want and what you choose governing everything is that you know it has led to this kind of marketability of one's own body identity and think about well if you want to choose to be you know, a cat, you can be a cat if you want to cheat, and the other, everyone else has to affirm it. So, so you have kind of distorted views with, with, you know, with, when the layers aren't, aren't in place. And that is a perversion of, of what was set out to be, you know, a proper view of free
1: market and, and the relationship of responsibility. And um, that only exists in carefully circumscribed areas. Yes. Uh, Yeah. Try being an election denier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, or yeah. any any number of other things related to taboo areas. There and are usually, taboo areas where you are, where, where you are not allowed to go. But within the small circumscribed area of how you define your own sexual, identity, you can do it sexual, any way you yeah. want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. I remember. I remember when I was at Harvard, I made this this very point in a class, and uh, man, I really got them mad at me. <laughs> I said, I said yeah. y- y- "Your your notions of freedom." are so narrow and so petty. Uh, yeah. what I'm, uh, advocating here when I, am, when I'm advocating, you know, a free market is the kind of agency that you guys freak out over. You can't handle. You, uh, yeah. You, you don't want to acknowledge that kind of freedom because it's, it's, uh, an exercise, uh, in power or with power that makes you nervous. But I, I, I think, you know, as we're, kind of wrapping this up as we think about this this matter what I what I'm getting at is um, totalitarianism is a kind of scientific approach to managing a population and when it is uh, in full force when it's sort of uh, got all of the pieces in place that it really wants to have it's total in character it leaves no space for uh, for anything that can't be subjected or isn't subjected to its, its uh, control. And that's what makes it such a terrible thing and also what makes it such, such a frightening thing. And we are uh, in a situation now where we have the means to pull off a kind of totalitarianism that the world um, was maybe hinting at or certain regimes were hinting at in the past it didn't have the means to bring about but now we've got the means um and it's spooky stuff anyway anything you guys want to say as we wrap up well i I think what you have also is you know
2: a, a a rearrangement of things to where what is considered good um is is a cheap substitute for the good and because of that what you have is you you eradicate freedom which in the classic sense and christian sense is the endowment to truthfully enact your creatureliness creatureliness with all of its gifts you know in accord with the highest good that is drawing them towards their perfection um so if you have if you change what the good is the good is that which um you want or the good is that which we say it is right um, or what we're going to determine it. I think that's where we're dealing with right now in a lot of the Western world. We have, you know, those that have enthroned themselves to basically tell us what is good for us and how we should orient ourselves towards it. Um, they're substituting, um, the, the, you know, their good for the good. Um, they're, they're, they're identifying their authority given by God as if it is God's authority and God. And I think that's where the totalitarian disposition It's they're not servants of God in their mind. They
0: are God. And I think this gives us a basis for
1: rebellion, uh, a legitimate basis for resistance. Glenn. Um, I think I've said about as much as I really need to say for this episode. So (laughs) we'll call it a day for me. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you folks for listening
0: to the theology podcast. You've made it to the end of this episode and, uh, we're glad that you have, uh, we have many people who listen on an ongoing basis to the show. Um, we get reports, uh, we get notes, get letters, uh, emails, etc., from different play- people in different parts of the world. And we're very grateful that people care about the things that we care about. And then there are also people who give to the show in an ongoing way. Uh, we've got folks who support us on Patreon and there's a link in the show notes, uh, for anyone who'd like to, do, to, to become a, a, a patron of the show. Uh, we have people who support us through the Fight laugh feast network, and those are great folks. And we appreciate, uh, what we receive through that, uh, good organization. And, uh, we also, uh, are looking forward to an, a whole new year. We're entering mm-hmm. into another, another year. And uh, we've got some exciting uh, things in store for folks. And we're still kind of building this wagon as we ride it. We're kind of <laughs> kind of figuring out how to make it all work as we go along. But even so, even though it's just us and we're kind of clumsy when it comes to technology, uh, we've got people who come along behind us and sweep it all up and make it suitable <laughs> <laughs> uh, for public consumption. And we're grateful to those folks, too. Uh, but most of all, we're grateful to the Lord and uh, he's the one who's the source of all good things and uh, the gifts that we have uh, are given to us by him and uh, so we thank him and we thank you as well so enough for now bye bye